We've talked with Pete Flint before, a Brit deeply immersed in Silicon Valley startup culture, someone that's ushered in two unicorn companies, one of which, Trulia, was the inspiration behind Viveral, my business. He's now helping entrepreneurs leverage connections, experience, and capital as a partner at the venture firm NFX. Focused on seed funding, NFX has been investing in Latin America for quite some time, but Pete has taken the relationship with the region to the next level. He joined us at our first Valmos Latam Summit, our connections and knowledge flagship event. We'll share right now the chat we had at VLS. Pete and I talked about NFX's thesis and why it is growing interest in Latin American startups. What non-obvious pieces of advice Pete would give to early stage startup founders on fundraising and hiring, and how can founders scale their roles as they exit their businesses the right way. My name is Brian Reckworth and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. This is a fun chat because it's kind of somebody that I've known for what? How long have we known each other for? Maybe uh, at least a decade. Over when a we decade. Were much younger and uh... <laughs> yes, uh, eleven. I'd say eleven or twelve years. And I met Pete because when I was starting my business, I didn't have a lot of role models to look up to. I didn't. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any. I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to a top business school. So I didn't have a network. And I was really fortunate to connect with Pete. And Pete was further along in his journey. So if you look at a lot of what we're doing at Latitude, you find someone that's been on the journey. They've already kind of cut through all the difficult things and they've learned a ton of lessons. So Pete was building Trulia at the time, uh, which for those that don't know, it was a real estate business similar to Viva Real, but in the US. He's been through the entire cycle of pre-seed founder all the way through IPO. And then after that acquisition. So today we're going to try to cover uh, a bunch of uh, steps in the journey, but he was someone that I could just lean on. So it's incredible to have you here, um, you know, and I, I want to, if you could, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's an incredible event. Uh, <laughs> kudos to Latam, to Brian and the team. This is like amazing. So it's awesome. Thank you for, thank you for coming. So we're going to cover a handful of things. Maybe just first, let's talk, let's talk about NFX a little bit and network effects uh, and a little bit more about what the firm is doing, what you've, a quick overview. I'm sure a lot of you read their content already because, and if you don't, it's some of the most valuable content for startup founders, but maybe just start off by just giving a quick overview. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so we started NFX, kind of the similar spirit. We wished uh, NFX was a seed fund that we always had as founders. So we started NFX about five years ago. Really what makes us different is, one is we have a team of operators that have founded 10 companies worth more than 10 billion which I think is more than any other, uh, certainly any other seed fund. We built the biggest seed fund. So in the world, a dedicated seed fund of 450 million. Um, so we lead, lead every deal. Um, and our focus is network effects. So network effects, I'm sure you guys uh, know and understand network effects, but a refresher is that network effects are comp- uh, uh, is a property in a company where the more people use that product or service, the better that product or service gets for every other user. So you could think of Uber or Airbnb or Microsoft even, the app stores. So the majority of value in technology companies is created by network effect businesses. So we built them, we scaled them, and now we really focus on helping companies, new founders to, to build amazing network effect businesses. I just want to highlight one quick thing. If you didn't hear him you know, the first time, largest seed fund in the world, coming down to Brazil, interested in Brazil, investing in Brazilian companies. 
She's like, where was that when I was starting out, uh, you know, back in 2007, 2008 in Brazil? It was a desert if you were trying to raise capital. So taking a moment to, to kind of take that in. And I think it's a good transition for my first question, which is a lot of people, you know, I remember being an American here, people like, why, why'd you come to Brazil? What's the motivation? Why LATAM? Why, why are you looking at LATAM and what's the interest and why Brazil and, and Latin America? Yeah, so we, so we started um, investing in the region more kind of, uh, opportunistically, like probably six months after we started NFX. Um, and, you know, you can detect my accent, British by origin. So I spent half my, half my life in Europe and half my life in, in the US. And then when we made this initial investment um, in, uh, originally in, in a, in a um, Colombian Mexican company, I came down and checked it out. And I was just, um, I mean, you've, you've heard it today, but the talent was remarkable and the ambition and the talent. And I think what, and once I dug deeper, the, the couple of the, the themes that were super interesting to me was, and I, it's easy for me as a European to compare it to Europe because the US is like, okay, the US is big, it's America, but like, where do you want to spend your time? And, and looking at LATAM is like, there's a real lack of incumbency, which means these incredible companies can build, be built incredibly quickly. Um, in Europe, for instance, there was a sort of web 1.0 companies. There's just not that same degree here. So you see companies like New Bank and Rappi and many others just like accelerate so quickly, which you don't see anywhere else, maybe for a period of time, India, China, but you don't see anywhere in the Western world. Um, secondly, this fragmentation, Julio talked about it, like fragmentation when you're a platform and, a, and focus on marketplaces you can provide a ton of value. And then the people are cool and interesting, the climate and the food and just the culture is like, um, you know, I, I love the people and the environment. That's awesome. I think we should take advantage of the fact that Pete's here. Like I mentioned, he's gone through the entire process of starting, scaling, exiting. And so we're going to kind of break this chat into those three, maybe those three sections. We'll start off with you know, a lot of the founders here are maybe early in their journey and starting out. So I think it's good to kind of double click on a few things related to that. And then we'll kind of cross the journey all the way to exit and talk a little bit more about, you know, part of that. Maybe you could first start off just sharing a little bit more about a lot of founders. They look at TechCrunch and they're like, or even you see, you know, some of the founders on stage here and they raise large rounds and kind of feels like everyone is doing that. But that's really not the case. What are some non-obvious things that you can share about the fundraising cycle, and particularly in the early days? Yeah, I'll try and break it down, and I've been on both sides, right? So I've raised a bunch of money from VCs, and now I am a VC, so I kind of, I'm, I'm sympathetic to kind of to both sides. Um, so what you need to know is that fundraising, first and foremost, is about FOMO. From the VC mindset, is about fear of missing out. Are you the next new bank, or Rappi, or next billion dollar company? And creating a sense of um, competition, hunger, you have to be that hot company so that VCs think that, like, I just can't miss out. I can't miss out. Um, and, you, and VCs are looking for these, these big opportunities. So, so FOMO, you know, like it or not, is a huge driver in the decision psychology. The other, the other piece is fear of looking stupid. And, and you think of, like... Um, you know, some of these ideas at the beginning, like Airbnb, like, that's kind of stupid. Um, 
but look what it turned into. So trying to strike the balance of like, of, of like not looking stupid. Because a VC, I've got to pitch to my partners and say like, this is going to be the next big thing. And the reality is that the next big thing does look kind of like quirky and crazy. And you need to help the investor kind of bridge that gap between, yes, this is a crazy idea, but this might just work. Um, and helping thread that needle. What are the proof points? What are the data points? What's the team? Build what we call the ladder of proof to help people go from like, yeah, this is a crazy idea, but they've got the team, they've got the passion, they've got the proof points, they've got the early traction. And so you can start to move up this ladder of proof to say, yes, this is, this is a crazy idea that might just work. And that's the kind of stuff that, that, that VCs really love. Just if I may, the... You know, I have the fortune of we've invested a bunch of companies in Latin America. We've, um, I, I meet a lot of amazing founders in Latin America. If I, you know, the, just some of the tips for folks, because I've, you know, when speaking to U.S. investors, um, a couple of suggestions like that, that I would like to see more of and, and probably my peers in the U.S. is like, um, and I had to learn this. Like I'm, um, you know, a Brit and I'm like a, uh, I study physics, and so I'm kind of like... By the way, he has a, a, a degree in physics from Oxford. Just he didn't mention, <laughs> the, but this guy's pretty smart. <laughs> just so, so everybody knows, only Oxford. So I, you know, I, and when I moved to the SNI to raise money, I had to get rid of this sort of British apologetic, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, like, uh, you know, politeness. Like, in America, raising money is like, you kind of have to be hardcore. You have to show your passion you are going to move mountains to make this work. You are going to do whatever it takes to kind of break through walls to see this. And, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I meet some amazing founders that kind of need to push themselves to like, and it's not being salesy or being kind of like cheesy, but it's like demonstrate the passion. You see the passion inside when you sort of dig deeper, but really drive that passion home. And I heard it from one of the panelists um, on the, the VC panel, like, when you walk away from the meeting and you're just like, you're, you're sort of on, on cloud nine, like you need to think hard about that. And so very simply just show that passion that you have. I've got a bunch more. Let's recap. So if everyone knows FOMO, probably no one's ever heard of Foles, fear of looking stupid. That's kind of a new concept. So that's another thing to understand the psychology of investors there. And then thinking really big and being... I've seen it in Latin America too, um, where there's like, you kind of, you, you know, you want to say you're going to build something really big, but you, you don't want to seem crazy. But crazy is a compliment, as Linda Rottenberg would say from Endeavor. She's the founder of Endeavor. Crazy is a compliment. And you've got to be a little crazy to be a founder, right? Because yeah. it's freaking hard. You've done it. Like, uh, it's really hard work. And everyone, all the investors know it's freaking hard. And so you need to have this unwavering passion to see it through. So other stuff we see is um, VCs really look for really big ideas. Like when you understand the, the kind of like breakdown of how VCs make money, the reality is that we lose money or break even on most of the companies we invest in. And so few companies like Vivreal, like Trulia, that kind of like make a huge difference. And so we need really big ideas. And so... It's not, I meet many founders with good ideas, but how can they become big ideas? And pushing hard on that is, is super critical. And then finally, the, 
when we see companies which are derivative models of US, we get kind of disappointed because the very best companies in LATAM and also true in China and India are like, maybe, you know, they're either entirely homegrown where they have a very novel take on a particular makeup of the market or they're inspired or influenced in some way by something they've seen elsewhere, but not copycats. You know, LATAM, this region is special, it's different, it's got particular characteristics. And when you, when I meet founders who are like, we studied the global market, this is what we've seen in the US, this working here, but LATAM is different. It's different because of this. And we've tuned our product to satisfy the needs of this market and have a particular insight. Then it's like, okay, wow, that's super impressive that they've got that and they know they, that they can't copycat the business. Yeah, I think that's an important point because oftentimes I think there was a few generations of companies. Like I, I fell in the generation of like, I got inspired in, in Pete's business. I ended up building Viverao as like the same business as Pete. But the lesson there is, you know, I, I ended up, you know, leaving the door open for my friend Gabriel from Quinto Andar, who went in and built more verticalized opportunity. And so, there, you know, you, you, if you just copy what already exists and you don't solve the specific problems in the market, you're, you're going to leave the door open. And I think uh, you can get inspired, right, by those success stories, but you've got to tropicalize and adapt and solve the real problems of those founders. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. Let's transition a little bit we're still early stage. Let's talk about hiring for a second. What are some thoughts, the first kind of 10, 20 hires that you have to make? You know, what are some things that people here need to be thinking about in that journey? So I, I've seen from our experience that the, the DNA for the company is set in the first like 10, 20 people. The DNA, the core way the, the organization operates. And the challenge is like when you're 10, 20 people and you maybe have raised nothing or a small amount, it's like, it's really hard to hire. Like, no one really takes you super seriously. Like, um, and so it's very hard to find these people. And so you kind of have to will them in to sell them, convince them. And I, the bar that people set is a true indication of where things end up. You know, we've looked at thousands of companies, and if they're able to hire great people early on, then that makes a dramatic distance later. But it's hard. And so... You know, while you think to yourself, okay, I need to be spending all this time on building products, being to customers, true. But the, the quality of people you bring on will define, at the early stages, will define a lot of the, the future path. The people that I look for and appropriate for startups are generalists. Like I, I, I have a sort of experience fallacy where the, like, the more experienced the people, the danger, the danger is that you end up building what you're trying to disrupt. So if you're trying to build you know, whatever the next FedEx uh, for LATAM, don't hire the VP of something from FedEx for your first 10 people. You know, a VC might say, yes, that's a good idea, but it's probably a very bad idea because they're going to build what they know rather than the only way to disrupt FedEx is doing something FedEx would not do. And, it's, uh, and you need to find journalists and, and people that come from the outside looking at this problem to think about it differently. 
So that's an interesting concept. It makes a lot of sense. If you're trying to disrupt someone, you need someone from the outside. Sometimes it takes an outsider to see a market opportunity that doesn't, isn't kind of corrupted in their thought about because it already exists. And I think another point, just to double down on that, that statement is, you know, I think that a lot of things I see in early stage founders is that they think they're going to just like hire some flashy executive from an established company thinking that's going to help build in because they want to become that. But the reality is you need people, you said generalists, but just people, mao na masa, como se fala in Portuguese, right? Hands on. Because in the early days, you just don't know. You, and you need someone that is able to adapt, that's, that can just get their hands dirty. And so I think that's something that's really important in the early days. You need people that are just ready to get it done, ready to make it happen, and just, you know, just adapt to, to those early stage, early stage moments, right? And that, and that Yeah. And I, I look back at the kind of first 10 people that hired it at Trulia. Like they, they weren't really skilled in anything, to be honest. But they were awesome people, incredibly hardworking, incredibly committed, and athletes that could figure out the problems as they would, as they would come up. Yeah. I'm proud of our team, too, by the way. Our, our first 10, 20, we, we, we got that right, uh, as you can see by cool. this event. A little plug for my team. Let's move into scale mode. We, you know, we've only got about 15 minutes left. And I just want to ask something because like VCs, sometimes it feels as a founder, it feel, you feel schizophrenic when you've got the 2021, 2020 kind of like craze of like grow faster and here's some more money and let's keep going, get market share. And then all of a sudden it's like snap back to reality where it's like, all right, now cut costs and let's make sure we get to profitability. So you know, as a first-time founder, I remember paying a lot of attention to what my investors would say. And because I was insecure, the imposter syndrome is real when you're starting out because you haven't done this before. What's your kind of overall advice? How much should you take in from your investors when they give you advice about building the business? Well, I, a lot of my perspective is driven from my experience. So in 2008, uh, we were running a, an online real estate company in the U.S., and everyone knows what happened. The mortgage market collapsed. The housing market collapsed. The economy collapsed. And, you know, we had investors that were giving this, you know, similar advice you see today. is like, cut costs, get profitable immediately um, because the world is coming to an end. And maybe I shouldn't say this, but I kind of ignored the VCs. Um, so, um, so, uh, so they, I mean, you know, we were... We were part of, um, uh, you know, Sequoia and Axel were invested in us. And they were giving generic advice because they were fighting their own fires. And at the time, we had enough confidence and importantly enough cash, frankly, to, um, to kind of realize, okay, we need to, we need to, we, we can't, you know, it's, it's, you know, some of the psychology is like, it's not playing to win, it's playing not to lose. You cannot play not to lose. You have to play for win, to play to win. And, you know, we heads down, sure, we, you know, in the sequence of these things, like, do you cut fat? Do you cut muscle? Do you cut bone? Our VCs were carrying out, encouraging us to maybe get into the muscle. We're like, no. Okay, sure, we're going to cut some of the fat. Um, and everyone has some, um, you know, like, <laughs> so, uh, so you, and then you, and then you get, um, but we left there that and like, let's, and let's try and figure out how to invest in growth. So um, that's what we did. And I think there's, you know, for founders in the audience, you have two main objectives. One, don't run out of cash. And if you feel that you're in a good business, the market's receptive, you can raise money, great. Don't, and don't misjudge 
emails from people for fundraising ability. But, you know, look, if you can raise money and the and companies are raising money, then you shouldn't be too timid about this. This is a time to be aggressive. And then two, take the market. Like, what did Winston Churchill say? Like, um, never get a good, never let a good crisis go to waste. Like, you know, your competitors are like maybe um, have less capital, incumbents are concerned, like inflation. Look, there's so much stuff going on in the market. How can you move faster than the competition, shift your product and evolve? And that's what we did. You know, I, we did that in 2001 when I was in an online travel business. We did that in 2008 in, uh, in real estate and we came out. So uh, play to win. Don't play not to lose. Yeah, just to kind of piggyback that, I think quoting Senna, on a rainy day, you know, on a sunny day, it's hard to pass 15 cars on the track. And so it might be an opportunity to be more aggressive. Let's talk a little bit about this scaling the role as a CEO and founder. Your role shifts a lot over the time, right? In the early days, you know, you, you've got, you know, you've got to focus on a few things. And as the company scales, how would you describe kind of the role shifting from maybe a product manager to an actual company manager? I mean, you, yeah, you said it. It's like, how do you, like your, your first job is to find product market fit. And usually it's the CEO or the founding team that's like intensely focused on that, intensely focused on finding product market fit. And, and you have to be the product manager. And then as you shift, you have to be the company manager. And, you know, I, I think that the, the skills involved in being a product manager, which are often about empathy and analytical nature, understand the needs of your customers, interpreting those needs correctly, and then being sort of in the data and details to figure out, okay, they're doing this, we should do that, we should evolve the product this way, are um, actually very helpful to be a company manager. Um, but the many founders are unable to make that leap from being like building product to building companies. And you have to kind of force yourself to do that and that means delegating, getting out of the weeds, hiring people. And, you know, we were first-time managers once. And, like, you know, you, you kind of learn by doing, but you also need to augment your team with people that are awesome managers, that have experience, to help you create role models for the organization. But it's that, you know, there's companies that need to shift from that product manager to company manager, that's a huge gap. And that's really hard. And finding mentors, finding executives is a key part of uh, making that transition. What do you think the most common mistakes that founders make as they grow the company, they scale, you know, as it relates to culture? What, 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 do you, what are the things you see most often that founders need to be aware of and not and avoid? I mean, we talked about a little bit before, like hiring the, the sort of like uh, executive sure. who is going to, who is going to like uh, come in and try and run the business. I, there was a, you know, there was a situation for me where I was like, I was a product manager and I was trying to move to company manager. Like, let's hire a VP of product. And um, we hired a fancy VP of product that worked at amazing places, sort of equivalent today of hiring people at a Facebook or Google. And like, I said, well, you're, you're the man. You, you know how to do this stuff. Like, it's yours. A little bit of that imposter syndrome, perhaps. And, um, and it was a total disaster. Because, because I... What happened? What, what didn't work? Well, well I, you know, I essentially delegated too much. And um, he went off on... He didn't have the 
the context of the company, didn't have the context of the data, didn't have the context of the experiments. And so, you know, you need to balance this ability to delegate with a, a high level of curation about onboarding and helping these people to be successful. You can't assume day one as a first-time founder that you hire a fancy VP and they're going to know what to do. Um, so I, I shifted at that point to being a, to really to shadow for months and months and months, executive, like, and my job was not to delegate. My job was, how do I help this person to be the most successful executive in the organization? And that was a sort of big transition in my mind, because you're, you're wearing so many different hats and the cost of a mistake is so high that, and so I now like, yeah, you need to get the right person in, which takes enormous effort. And then you really have to help them to be successful and, you know, almost to, to a sort of level of detail that is like can take months and months and months. Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Let's uh, take our last few minutes here and talk about the exits, right? And we haven't seen as many exits in, in Latin America that we'd like. Ecosystem is much more developed than it, than it was when I started, for sure. When's the right time to exit as a founder? I mean, you sold your company in what year was it? 2000, what? 2014. 14, 15, yeah. yeah. So how did you know it's time to, to take the deal and, and I guess take the money? <laughs> um, and what's a framework for thinking about When's the right time to exit the business? Yeah. So it's, it's really hard, right? This is really hard. And, it, and it, I don't expect any sympathy, but like, because it worked out well, but it's, but it's really, you don't start a company to sell a company, or at least you shouldn't. You should start a company to solve a big, meaningful problem. And then what happened with Trulia, we got approached by Zillow, which is our number one competitor. And, you know, they'd approached us a number of times beforehand, and we made the decision as a, as a team and as a board that this was the right thing to do. But I can tell you, like, got the call and like, we want to do this. And like, no freaking way. Like, um, I don't want to do this. I'm having, I've got a great job, a great team. We're profitable. We're hundreds of millions of dollars, multi-billion dollar company. Like, no freaking way. And, you know, after a period of time, I started to kind of think about it and digest it. And I guess the sort of, the framework that I kind of backed into was, was the following, like when you're a sustainable business, like in really options, the right time to sell is, I, I say four key things. So, so one is, is the game, it's what's made you successful in the past, unlikely to make you successful in the future. So let's just say like you're in a, a fintech and everything's moving to crypto and you just don't have that capabilities or you need to be decentralized and you're centralized or it's a web company to mobile or something that is changing, like you might want to think about it because uh, the world looks much harder in the future. Two is that, are you number one in your, in your market? And it depends how you define your market, 
But the nature of network effects, which all these big companies have, is that the big company, even if you're a little bit bigger, has an unfair advantage over the smaller company. And this is when things kind of shake out and it's mature. You know, and truly, Zillow was about one quarter ahead of us. So literally, we were kind of like reporting our quarterly earnings. They were, we were one quarter behind, which is really hard. And as public companies, we couldn't easily just like outspend them because we we're on that, that kind of earnings cadence. Three is like if someone's going to pay you forward for execution risk. So like you look at the Figma deal that was announced just last week, it's like $20 billion. And I don't know the, the financials, but it feels to me that they were number one, doing awesome, the future. But Adobe came in with this like, well, okay, that's too good to refuse. We can't turn that down. And then four is you're tired. It's burnt out. You don't want to do this anymore. You're kind of done. For me, it truly, that wasn't the case. We were kind of fired up. But if you're feeling that, then, you know, you should think about, okay, should I make a, a CEO transition, which is totally normal, or you should think about the company. But that's kind of how I break it down. And, you know, in retrospect, that transaction was, came out the other side, like, this is the, exactly the right thing to do. We could move our product roadmap forward. We can help to build a massive platform. And, and no regrets at all about it. How does a global investor look at and boots on the ground? You don't have an, a local team, yet you've made a handful of investments. So what is the process that you take and how do you find the opportunities to find those potential companies to invest in? Yeah, the, so it's, I mean, we, we're a global company, global firm, but we're quite small and we don't have an office here. So we look at various different guideposts around market, around team, and stuff, but we really, you know, there, there is a huge amount of signaling we look for. And so really for us, it's like looking at, okay, we speak to our founders and say like, okay, founders are like, like, okay, do you know this person? What do you think about this market? Have you heard of them? We look at their angel investors. We look at Latitude. I mean, we in NFX invest in Latitude because quite honestly, like Brian would introduce his company, like that's, they're amazing. Like a lot of these guys here that, we perhaps should have invested in before. Like, they're amazing. So like that signaling of like, okay, they're uh, backed by these, these famous angels, backed by Latitude is like, for us, that, that kind of key signal. Well, listen, Pete, uh, I just want to say one last kind of word. You know, for me, it's really special to have you here. I think that it's very symbolic about what's happening in Brazil and in Latin America, where there's people that are kind of lifting up the next generation, right? And there's a lot of people here that are trying to empower the next founders. And this is a guy that, you know, from kind of a, a relatively cold message, got an intro and took his time, gave me tons of feedback, also kind of got me plugged in and connected. And I think that's a lot of inspiration that we have at Latitude is for you and, you know, you guiding and mentoring me. And so I think that we're really lucky to have you here. Latin America is lucky to have NFX also investing. And we hope you come back and, and spend more time down here with us. So thank you for, for being here. Vamos Latin. Almost Latam. I love it. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Pete Flint. Taken from our chat during the Valmos Latam Summit, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Valmos Latam. See you in the next episode.